All right, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. We are here today with the special podcast, and we have a special guest today, Paul Merrill from NYPD. He's a former retired inspector, and he is a Fox analyst as well. Welcome to the show, Paul. Nice to be here. All right, Paul. Let's. We're going to talk about today about the the murders in Idaho. Right. So as a, as the weeks go on, the days go on. There's a lot of stress and a lot of. Uh, anticipation to find the person who who did this um what, what what's your thoughts on on why it's taking so long well they were very hamstrung the investigators here were quite hamstrung by the fact that this was the week of uh the thanksgiving break and so consequently very often in a case like this the if you get a fast solve it's going to be, be <clears throat> excuse me they're going to it's going to be because there are witnesses who see the perpetrator return from the scene or they're aware of the fact that there is some sort of a dispute between the assailant and the victims. And in this case, you didn't get that because a lot of the school had already left for the break. Right. And right. Uh, a lot of them actually, uh, the school actually in an effort to um, calm things down, gave everybody the option of completing their courses from home remotely. So what that did is facilitated uh, the option for a lot of the students to leave Moscow and go back home to wherever they actually live. So consequently, you didn't get, I think, a lot of the tips that you might normally have gotten in the immediate aftermath of something like this. That doesn't mean it's a cold case. That's a complete misnomer. That's the kind of thing that's bouncing around right now. But what it does mean is that by the time everybody was coming back to school, you had at least a week had gone by. And now the detectives are starting out, if it's not a cold case, but let's say it's a little bit cooler than it had been or would have been in the immediate aftermath. And so now you're in a situation where you have to start backtracking, and that's what they've been doing ever since. There's a lot of evidence to go on. I still hold out the hope that they're going to get there, but that did hurt them. Now, let's start out with the evidence. They said they collected a lot of evidence. Um, How long and extensive is the process of itemizing these you know, the evidence and right. collecting the evidence and recording the evidence. What kind of time are we looking at once well, they do you, that? you got to remember that it's an ongoing process. And in fact, as late as a week afterwards, they were measuring, there were photographs that hit the media of the detectives out front, probably the crime scene folks, measuring the tire tracks in the front of the house. And that's where this theme started that, oh, they have... Um, contaminated the scene and etc and look that may be true there may be some cross contamination that they would rather had not occurred but we don't know that okay so in the immediate uh, aftermath of the crime and my understanding is they got there pretty fast the patrol cop got there pretty quickly i'm aware of the timeline in a pretty tightly um there were efforts made according to my best source <clears throat> to keep the timeline, I'm sorry, <clears throat> to keep the uh, crime scene uncontaminated. And I think certainly the second of the crime scenes, by then the patrol cop who showed up, the initial responder, knew, okay, we got a serious situation here. And so he was able to freeze the situation and get the crime scene techs in there, which even though it's a small department, they will have people who specialize in this kind of thing. Right. So how long? As I said, it can be as long as a week, depending on how far you push the crime scene out. There is an old saying, uh, there's, a, there's a rule in crime scene uh, response, which is you always go larger. Um, if the crime scene is 20 by 20, take it out to 40 by 40. 
<clears throat> you always, you never know where it's going to go to. And like I said, in this case, they actually started looking at tire tracks out front a week later. The initial response, I'm sure, went through the day on that Sunday as they collected all kinds of evidence, um, the blood particularly, any uh, other forensics. They got hairs, footprint, and then you get into a sort of second wave of stuff where they start bringing in some other technology to look at what's there. But uh, as of now, last I heard, they still, even though there were some reports, they still have not released the house itself. There's still crime scene tape around it. Right, right. So initially when the 911 call was placed, yeah. there was a lot of confusion about whether the girls actually called the surviving or if one of them passed out and then they had, you know, gave it to the fraternity brothers. Right. I mean, what, do you, what can you take of that? So my best um, estimation and from the best sourcing that I have and that I've heard, and, you know, if you really have been following this closely, a lot of this is already out. Um, the, the two girls downstairs, mm-hmm. okay, that uh, the survivors of the attack. Right, right. Okay. Um, Dylan and Bethany, I believe it is. Right. Um, they did discover the bodies. They did place the call. Um, there is some reporting that one of them, yeah, while on that call, passed out. What is released by the police, however, and I think this is the significant point that you're getting at, is that before they called the police, they quote-unquote summoned, that's the police term in the press release, Right. they summoned other students to the house. Now, I've walked the area, I've walked the neighborhood, only about a two- to three-minute walk across a field is the fraternity house that Ethan and Zana had been at. Right. And Ethan is a member of that fraternity. And in fact, the police timeline places them at that um, facility, at the fraternity house earlier in the night. Originally, they said 8 to 9 o'clock. They've subsequently come back and said they believe that they were there all night until they come back to the house at 145. Okay. So my read, and this is, again, part of the reporting that's out there, is that um, two folks came from the fraternity house. There is some reporting that one of them was Ethan's brother. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> When the girl who made the call made the call and apparently passed out or dropped the phone or whatever, um, one of those people picked up the phone, whoever that was, who came that they summoned, completed the call. That's why the uh, police have said there were multiple people on the 911 call. It's because one of the people that they summoned there picked up the phone and completed the call. But that's to to go to a significant point here, that's why, excuse me, that's why. The, I don't want to say confusion, but there was a little bit of, a, I think, a red herring in this thing where people put a lot of focus on the fact that the call came in as a possible unconscious. Mm-hmm. And the logical read that a lot of people who were observing this case had was, how could you look at that crime scene and say possible unconscious? Well, in light of what we just described, if the caller, the first 911 caller, was hysterical, very upset, understandably, maybe passed out. You, you have a 911 operator who's trying to understand what's going on. There's got to be a lot of confusion at the scene, a lot of noise. Everybody's shocked. The girl is crying, et cetera. So my gut tells me that the 911 operator put it in very quickly. I said, we might have an unconscious at that location. And while the 911 call is still going on and she's trying to figure out what's going on, she gets a patrol unit to go right over there. And that's the cop who shows up at the scene. So if that's the case then she must have seen the bodies. That's right. If she's seen the bodies, I mean, the doors were unlocked. 
Yeah, so that's another point of great speculation in this thing because according to people, a particular guy who um, lived at the house before the people that lived there when this occurred, the individual bedrooms all had a key code. And so you couldn't get in without knowing that key code. The other side of this, however, and we know that there was a key code lock at the front door as well to the exterior. Right. But we have to remember that all the early reporting is that the key code was generally known in the neighborhood and that the girls were uh, maybe, you know, they weren't always that conscious of keeping the house all locked up. So, and there was some reporting also that maybe some of the key codes in the interior of the house might not have been fully functioning. So I think the fact that um, at least one of the, it sounds to me like the second floor um, was likely not functioning or not engaged, the key code. Okay. And, um, you know, they were able to discover the bodies the next morning, and they made the call and, uh, you know, subsequently called, first called the other two students to come over, then finally realized we have to call 911, and you know the rest. Now, why would they call somebody else when if they found a you know a person murdered i mean the first instinct would be to call 911 i know not to call a fraternity <clears throat> brother when you find somebody murdered i mean a situation like that i mean what's yeah. your thoughts on I, that i mean you know the these are young kids who uh, have never encountered something like this before these are people that you know they know really well uh, one of them zana they lived with and um i think that there might have been just, you know, a little bit of panic and something that they weren't mentally prepared for. One thing that, you know, uh, police work taught me a long time ago is that there is not always a perfectly logical explanation for the steps that people take. You know, when you right. look at something later, you say, well, why on earth did they do that as opposed to this? And, um, you know, the police have fully washed out the two roommates downstairs. Um, I think the media has been admirably sensitive about going to those, I've not heard anybody speculate. Um, and I'm not on all these websites and all these websites that have a lot of speculation about the case. And I, I try to avoid that because I'm trying to deal with primary sources and things that are, um, you know, reportable. Right. Um, I haven't heard any speculation of any sort that, uh, you know, the girls did anything wrong or any role in it, the girls that survived. So my read is that they just panicked um, and they might have seen, I, I think that um, from what I understand, the timeline is likely that Ethan and Zana were discovered first. And if, in fact, the reporting about Ethan's brother is accurate, I think what they did was they just instinctively, for whatever reason, <clears throat> called his family member. They know he was dead. Right, right. They called a family member to say, oh, my God, oh, my God, you got to get over here. You have to see, you know, your brother's here. And then upon those two people arriving, if it was two, um, they said, look, we got to call the police. Okay. And then <clears throat> now they, they did say that Zena had defensive wounds. That's as per her father. Per, per her father said right. that. If that's the case, then she had defensive wounds and then the per went upstairs and still committed the crime even after getting spooked. Yeah. So this is where you get really into the area of speculation and there were all kinds of theories about it. And, um, you know, I have my own sort of view of it. I don't know. Um, we don't know enough facts right. to really say definitively this is likely what happened. But what we can do is talk about, let's say, some of the things that the police will be looking for. So let's take that tack. So if it is accurate that um, Zana 
and Ethan were the first that were attacked. Then, you know, there should be indications of that in the house. There should be things like footsteps. You know, apparently the scene was very graphic. We've all seen those photos of the blood dripping down on the outside of the house, right? Right, right. And there is some wiggle room, um, and this is something I know you've talked about, which is whether or not um, the the first two, Zana and Ethan, were killed in their beds while asleep. According to the coroner, who gave a video interview, and she was very um, positive about this. She didn't hedge. She said all four were killed while asleep in bed. Okay. Medical examiner then walked that back a little bit later, according to certain reports, and said that may not be accurate. So it's hard to tell what the condition was in the first room. But assuming that the second floor was the first place to be attacked, there should be indicia there um, of the order of that all this occurred. If it was that uh, graphic, you should see maybe some footsteps leading from the scene, going upstairs. Etc. It's going to be very hard to tell from the time of death. You're not going to be able to do that, you know, because you're talking potentially a matter of minutes. But there should be some indications when they start to really scrape the crime scene and start using ultraviolets and you know, etc. Um, the order that all of this occurred in. And so the hope, if you're an investigator, if I catch this case and we're dealing with it, I say, okay, Zana has defensive wounds. Now you have a second crime scene, which is from what I, what I understand, was not in any way contaminated. The cop would have had to, the patrol cop would have had to gone into the third floor to make sure he can't render aid. But once he determines that the two on the third floor are beyond his help, he can get out of there now, make sure he keeps everybody out of there, the dog, everybody out of there. So now you have another pretty well-preserved crime scene. You have something to compare it to. If there are defensive wounds from one of the girls upstairs you now have the possibility that there is DNA under Zana's fingernails and you have DNA, let's say, under Maddie's fingernails. Right. And so, you know, there's contamination and there's contamination. You can, you can assuage contamination by doing what they call elimination. So you can say, okay, well, this DNA goes to the cop. Okay, he touched the bodies, et cetera. We're picking this up. We do a swab on him. That's his DNA. We can eliminate that. Um, there's other DNA that's here from... I don't know, somebody who was in the room recently who, you know, uh, dropped a cigarette butt, whatever. But the defensive wounds, if they're in two different locations, and the police said that some had defensive wounds, that's more than one. And we know Zana's one of them. Right. And we know that one of the girls upstairs, according to Mr. Gonsalves, had very, very extreme wounds, okay, worse than the others, according to him is the possibility that then you have defensive wounds in two different locations. And that hopefully, I would be hoping to be able to isolate the foreign DNA that goes to this perp. Doesn't mean you're going to get his identity from that, but now you have an exemplar to shoot for. And if and when you develop a pool of possibles, you can use DNA to try to confirm that. Now, with that situation, can we identify who was the target? If they went to the second bedroom first and then to the third Mm. Or was the third, I mean, was Kaylee and um, yeah. them the target? I don't think you can. Um, you can take educated guesses. You can take theories. You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we harp on is that you have to have the evidence lead you. you what you don't want, which is called in, uh, in, in police work um, and intelligence work, <clears throat> confirmation bias. What you don't want is a theory. And then everything that you discover subsequent to that, you force into that theory. 
That's not the way you want it to go. You want the evidence to lead you where it takes you. So who was the target? That's the question that everybody wants to know because it would certainly focus the police investigation. I know, again, Mr. Consalves, who's been the most vocal of the victim's parents, um, you know, he's talked about one of them definitely was more wounded, and so um, that would be, in his estimation, the target. But, you know, you could also say, well, is that the person who fought back the most? I mean, remember, now you have two different situations with couples in bed. Right. So you are, by definition, one of them is going to get stabbed first. The other's going to wake up. That gives that person the possibility of fighting and resisting, right? Right, right. So if the second in both instances is the one who managed to put up the biggest fight, that person very well may have the worst injuries. Ah, that makes sense. And that doesn't necessarily then mean, okay, that person has the worst injury, so she must be the target. I think there are ways you can undercut that theory. This is a confounding case, you know, as I said on the air, and, you know, this is why I'm, 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 I'm always hesitant to, to, to put too many eggs in one basket. Every, uh, first of all, we don't have all the, all the facts. The police have a lot more. I mean, there are things that they have, you know, that they, uh, have they isolated the DNA? Can they tell if he was lefty and right-handed or right-handed from the angle of the wounds? Right. Are there footsteps showing that the order that it was done in, et cetera? Did they have, did the bloodhounds pick up anything? Because they deployed bloodhounds. Did the bloodhounds pick up anything outside? You know, what's the story with this car? Does it go to the rear parking lot? Well, you know, there are various things that they, I think, have collected and are fairly secure on that we don't have. But it is one of those cases where any theory that you have, there's a counterfactual that runs against it. And uh, so you have to keep a very open mind. So that brings me to the knife. Now, in the first three days, right. they were able to determine it was a K-bar. Right. So my theory was, you know, I own a K-bar. Yeah. And... It says K-bar right on the case, and nobody carries a K-bar because of the the fixed blade. Right. So the killer must have carried it in a sheath or sheath, and carried it into the house with the sheath. Yeah. And my theory was that he must have dropped the sheath there, and the police. That's how they knew it was a K-bar. What do you think of that? You know, were that the case, that is such a solid piece of evidence. Um, I would think that they might have released that in their effort to get um, accurate tips. You know, the story goes, according to today's reporting, um, there are, they're sitting on over 10,000 tips that they have to vet. Now, they've got a lot of them going in. They transfer the tips over to the FBI tip line. So a lot of these things are being vetted uh, down in Washington. Um, and they still, ha- they still have this big task force constituted. So they do have the manpower to pursue a lot of these things. So I would feel like if you had a sheath, um, you would release it because there could be some aspect of it that's distinctive. It could jar somebody's memory, right. et cetera. And my recollection of how they described the knife was more that I know they, they went to K-Bar, but I also saw reporting where they said things like it is a K-Bar type knife. Okay. So not to be too graphic, but I think the distinctive aspect of a K-Bar, and you know, you know this, former Marine, um, it has the hilt on it that separates the handle from the blade. Yeah, so prevent you from sliding down and That's cutting right. your hand. Cut, cutting yourself. So in the, you know, as we've said, it was a graphic scene. You know, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't know. Um, the medical examiner, in examining the bodies, likely, if I had a guess, picked up an impression, a bruise, that has the distinctive outline of a K-bar hilt, which would argue that the knife right. went in, the blade went in all the way, the hilt impacted the body. Even if it's not a visible bruise, 
the ME can pick this kind of thing out uh, during an autopsy. And uh, my read is that from that, from the shape of the stabbing, uh, stab wounds, they know the depth of the blade. I think they probably have enough exemplars, enough examples of what this knife did for them to come back and say, okay, um, tip to handle this thing was, what is it, K-Bar, about a foot? Uh, about seven inches, I think. Is that it? Yeah. Is that small? Okay, so, um, you know, that, that we have that length, and, um, you know, we can see the hilt, and uh, we can see the shape of it, and if this was not a K-Bar, it was very close to that type of knife. Now, being able to say distinctively that it was a K-Bar would be a big deal, because it really narrows it down. Because I can tell you, again, having been out there, I went to the Walmart. I've never been in a Walmart in my life. They don't have them in the city, right? New York City. And, um, you know, the thing is as big as a city block. There, And one of the things they had is like a whole knife section. And there right. were all kinds of knives. I didn't see a K-Bar. That's, you know, military. It's a specialty knife, knife yeah. But there were knives like it with a hilt. So, you know, there's also the possibility that he dropped it. And it would leave an impression in blood. Right, And so what they might have gotten when they looked at the photos or at the scenes, they might have said, well, there's an outline of the knife, and that really does seem to go to a K-bar knife. And, you know, unfortunately, um, I saw numbers that are, you know, self-reporting, so, you know, I don't even want to repeat it, but thousands, let's say, of potential K-bars um, in the state of Idaho, and Washington, it's right over the border, Washington's right there. Right. And it might just be a K-bar that's been in a family. You know, K-bars have been around a long time. So... Um, while that does help, and I, I, you know, you hope that it would lead to something. I think the real hope there was that somebody in the public was going to say, you know, I had my doubts about so and so. I thought he might be the perpetrator. Now I hear this K bar thing. I know he has a K bar. I have to call that tip in, and maybe he did. They're sitting on again. They've they've received ten thousand tips. I don't know how many they've gone through, but for all we know, number three thousand four hundred and twenty one is the person who called up and said, I know who did this, and this is why you should be looking at that person. And they just haven't gotten to it yet. Right. Now, there's a couple of possible theories of how the perp came through the uh, through the house. Right. Uh, some say it was through the front door. Some say it was through the back door. Others have said that they came on top of the roof. Mm. Um, there's another theory that he might have been sitting in the attic on the third floor waiting for them before they actually, uh, you know, arrived. Yeah. I mean, give us some... Theories on what you would That think. is really risky behavior for somebody who uh, wants to get away with a homicide, um, stashing yourself in the house. I mean, how do you explain um, that to uh, the victim who may discover you and her friends are there? Um, you know, this wasn't necessarily going to go like it went. I mean, if the person was secreted inside the house... There's a very good possibility that the person is going to get discovered, especially when you remember that there's a dog in the house. Now, the dog was old right. and used to people coming in and out. But um, bottom line is, if you're hiding in Kaylee's closet and the dog is pulling at the closet and there are eight people in this house at the end of a, of a Saturday night when everybody was out having a nightcap, you got a problem. And how are you going to explain it? Especially when you're carrying a K bar, you know, which by the way looks a lot bigger to me than eight. I, that's got to be, a, uh, yeah. I mean, that's got to be big. That's got to be at least ten inches. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the samples I've seen, <laughs> we handled one out at the scene. I was going right. to say it's bigger than that, but in any case, how are you going to explain that knife? Right, right. We're on we're on video, right? Right. Yeah. Why don't you show? Why don't you show? Because uh, you know, I think it's very indicative. Yep. So this is the K bar with them. Yeah. 
So, look, you're walking around with that thing, especially if you have it in a sheath, which is the point you right, made. Right. You know? and there's now, no look, way you can carry this button. Just walk no, in there. No, no, there's no way. So. so, you know, you got that thing on you. You're hiding in Kaylee's closet. Even if you're known to her, you know, you pop out of the closet at 3 in the morning, you're going to have some explaining to do, as the saying goes. So, And you don't know what situation you're getting into. That's right. very risky behavior. So, I have to be honest, uh, you know, it could subsequently turn out that, he was in an area that he knew was inaccessible, and he did wait. I don't know the interior of the house. I'd have to see. I've seen some blueprints. I don't know how accurate they are. But um, my read is that is likely not the case. Um, if I had to speculate and you're asking me to, I think um, the back of the house is a lot more shielded. Right. Um, as you and I have discussed, there is an area behind the house that has a parking lot that is maybe 50 feet away from the back sliding glass doors. I've stood in it and looked down. You look right through the woods into the kitchen area and the common area of the second floor. Ethan and Zana's bedroom, um, Zana's bedroom that Ethan was in is off of that kitchen. And then there's another bedroom that was unoccupied on the other side. Maybe he got lucky. Maybe he was secreted in that second floor bedroom. But that argues to me he knew enough to know that nobody was using that second floor bedroom and that he could hide himself in there effectively. So... You know, you're arguing somebody who, if they didn't decide that they were going to do that, really, really knew the house, knew what they were getting into, had done his homework, and I say his cognizantly because I, I think there's every chance that it's a male. Um, and you got to keep an open mind, obviously, but, you know, in, in terms of the strength it took, you know, it's a very exhausting thing to do what he did, never mind four times. Right, right. And Ethan was a big, strong kid. So um, I would say it's entirely possible. There are people I respect. Detectives I respect who feel like he was secreted in the house. Feels like a bridge too far to me. I feel like he was outside the house, came in second floor. Second floor. From behind. And then how he left, I would have put my eggs in the basket that he left the same way. Again, because it's a lot more secreted. It's a lot more cover. The front of the house is very exposed. You can see the front of the house from a mile away, literally. You can stand on the street that the fraternity house is. It's like across a field. And you can look right at the front of that house. I've done it. Whereas in the back, you're shielded by the house itself and some woods. So just in walking around it and putting yourself in the perp's shoes, it does feel like the back of the house is the way to go. But there is the, again, counterfactual, which is that according to a neighbor, and I'm told that this is reliable reporting. I spoke to the reporter who dug it out. And my understanding is the police know about it. 8.30 the next morning, Sunday morning after the murders, before the police were called, a neighbor reports that the front door was open. Right. So, I mean, that argues that at the very least, perhaps the perp left through the front door, and that goes against what I'm saying. But remember, this perp is covered in blood. He's got this big knife on him. I don't buy this idea that he hung around the house, took a shower and a lot of kind of stuff. You're asking a heck of a lot from a perpetrator to do that. Um, he's in a in a house with four dead bodies. He doesn't know who heard what. Was there a scream? Did they heard, hear noise, etc.? cetera? Um, I'm not really sort of buying into the idea that he hung around and cleaned everything up. And so he comes out the front door of that house on a Saturday night in an area where there's a lot of college kids coming back from the bars and everything else. He's got to disappear fast, and he's got to get home before it gets light. So he doesn't have a lot of options. To me, it's a car, which may be why they're looking for this Elantra. I, I assume it is. Right. So maybe he came out the front door right into a car that was in the front of the house and out of there. Or, and this is something I haven't seen raised anyplace else. I pulled a map 
when I was out there last time. Okay, I've been out there a few times. Um, the last time I pulled a, I pulled a map and I finally got around to looking at it. And something that hasn't really been commented upon is that the house is adjacent to a very large arboretum, like a park. Okay. That's all, you know, fancy trees, you know. Right. And then on the other side of the arboretum is a golf, golf course. So you have a very large area adjacent to this house that nobody is on that provides tree cover. If he is on foot, I, I don't believe he was, but were he on foot, um, you have to think that that would be the likely... He's not running out into the residential area covered in blood, right? So you'd have to think he likely wasn't going to do that, even, even let's say if it was four in the morning. So I almost feel like he went in that direction. And the thing that's intriguing about that is there were some small bodies of water. Right. And I wonder if those bodies of water had been dragged for the knife. Mm. Because um, you got to imagine he didn't want to carry this thing around. On the other hand, if it's a family heirloom because his father had it in the Korean War or something, right. maybe he did hang on to it. Um, as I said, I confirmed that they did deploy bloodhounds. You'd have to think the bloodhounds would have picked that up. So this is kind of going to where I keep saying we don't have all the facts. The police may know this. The bloodhounds might have led them right into the arboretum. Or the bloodhounds may have led them right into the front yard where, where his trail vanishes, which means, okay, he got into a car. These are things that they likely have put together and that they feel somewhat confident on, and that's how they're developing their theory. And so that's why I think that it's entirely possible that they still get there because there's a lot we don't know and a lot that they still have to go through. So with all this blood, you know, they described it as a bloody scene. He must have tracked some type of blood on his shoes, yeah. but you have no trace of blood outside. Right. How is that possible? I mean, even a single footstep of blood should be visible on the outside. Yeah, so I don't, you know, I got to be honest, I don't, I did not hear about the weather conditions, about it having rained or anything like that, which obviously would hurt you. Right. So that would argue then that he um, may have done some cleaning up of his shoes, just let's say, or he took his shoes off and carried them. And that takes me again to the backyard because it's the wooded area right. and it's all leaves. Okay. It's, um, you know, the, the, um, I was out there, it was about the first time I went out, I think it was a week after um, the homicides. And it was still very heavily, it's not heavily forested. That's the wrong word. There's a lot of shrubs. It's like a student area. Look, the kids live up there, right? So it's right. not exactly like there's a landscaper coming over to make everything perfect. There's a lot of undergrowth. There's a lot of bushes that are, you know, heavily grown together, et cetera. There's a little patches of woods, wooded areas. Um, but there was a ton of leaves. And I would imagine that however he managed to do it, he went out through an area that he probably... Um, you know, maybe did track some blood. We don't know that he didn't, but it was not enough to lead the police to wherever he was. And so that's why, you know, I go against the idea. There was a lot of speculation about, oh, a neighbor, a neighbor who watches the house all the time. And that certainly still, there were scenarios, again, where you could come up with uh, ways that could work. Right. But um, it feels to me like he does this. He's in a, you know, a panic. He's just killed four people. He's covered in blood. He, you know, he runs out of the house. He runs into a nearby apartment where he lives. I got to imagine that even a day or two later, the bloodhounds picked that up. Right, right. And so that's why, you know, maybe he took his shoes off. There's that speculation. Maybe he washed his shoes off. Maybe he did leave a bit of a blood trail, but then it goes dead. And that's why we are where we are right now. So it would be very interesting. You know, I think you ask a salient question. It would be every, very interesting to know if they did pick up a scent, and they must have picked up something because obviously somebody was in the house, right? 
where that died, where that sent, where the bloodhound chase terminated. Again, this is Idaho. This is hunting country. These folks, they got these bloodhounds up there. And uh, you got to imagine that the bloodhounds picked up something. Where did that terminate? Feels to me that would tell you something interesting. So after five weeks, you know, there's a lot of speculation that it could be a serial killer now that, you know, they haven't found somebody. But, you know, looking at the situation, I mean, what's your thoughts on that, that it could be a possibility of a serial killer? I mean, serial killer doesn't kill four people at one time. I mean, usually they yeah. kind well, of... There are categories of serial killers. And I know, um, you know, there's an old saying, when you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, right? Right. And so, you know, a lot of, of the um, pundits I've seen on TV or on the air or, you know, wherever... Um, you know, they go to the idea that, oh, you know, this reminds me of Ted Bundy who killed a bunch of, uh, you know, sorority uh, uh, women in Florida. That was his last, and that was actually ultimately what got him caught, and he was executed because of one of those because they were witnesses. Right. And it was a similar circumstances. They lived in a house together. He came in through a back door, et cetera. Okay. A couple of things I would say about the serial killer phenomenon. First of all, serial killers are very, very rare. I know that people are very interested in them. You know, there's television shows and stuff, Jeffrey Dahmer, but they're, they're a rare breed, thankfully. It's even a rarer breed. Now let's take a subset of that subset of the human population that doesn't have a sexual motive. Most serial killers have a very blatant and clear and, and forensically demonstrable sexual motive, Bundy being a good example. The reporting here has been uniform that there was no sign of sexual assault. Now, that's not entirely dispositive of there being no sex motive here. But you're now getting into an area where, okay, you're, you're in a breed of sex, of, uh, I'm sorry, serial killer who doesn't have a demonstrable sex motive. And so where does that take us? Well, you know, they exist as well, but it's an even smaller subset. You're talking about, let's say, David Berkowitz, son of Sam. Right, who was uh, operational in um, in New York City, right. uh, Brooklyn, and the Bronx in the seventies, um, you know, and he used a gun. He didn't even get that up close and personal. And he was kind of what we would call an incel now, involuntary celibate, who just seems to have had a gripe against women. California Zodiac, um, and then there are those who do things for political purposes, like the Unabomber. Let's say, right. who you know, we don't have that kind of a thing here. I don't think anybody senses this. Feels to me like kind of an incel thing, an anger thing. There was a lot of anger embedded in this thing. All right, this is a stabbing. It's very up close and personal. So, I'm feeling like if it the, the serial killer thing, you're talking about a very very rare instance. Furthermore, this would be a very serendipitous situation, a very lucky situation for a serial killer. Because, again, having walked the area, walked the neighborhood, you don't happen upon this house, okay? It's not something that, um, if you are a serial killer, if you're somebody who goes that way, you know, these are the impulses that you have. You know, you would have to have somehow or other really planned this. And it's possible. It's possible that in the city of Moscow or in Pullman, Washington, over the state line, or some of the area around there, there is somebody who is a hunter, who's comfortable with knives, who has these predilections, somehow or other spotted one of the girls who lives there, became focused on her, stalked her somehow or other, and then set this whole thing up. But you're talking about a real rare set of circumstances. Is it possible? Right. Sure. But we're talking about you know probabilities here in terms of the investigation. Whoever it was, the prosecutor got into a little bit of trouble with the police, uh, Moscow police spokesperson, person, a guy named Snell, um, 
and, and with the chief over there who said, no, we are the ones who speak for this case. But the, what the prosecutor said didn't seem to me that far off at all. He mm -hmm. said, whoever did this had to know the girls at the house. And, that's, and I agree with that. You had to know what was in that house. You had to know that your impulses were going to be satisfied by going into that house. And the idea that it is just a random serial killer who happened into that house um, feels to me a little remote. I think that um, whoever it was did have a target. Um, for some reason or other, had a gripe. And somehow or other, either knew the girls or the house. I would say probably the girls someplace in the orbit of their lives. Right. Uh, however remote. It could be the the brother of a sister of a boyfriend kind of thing, you know. Or it could be somebody who knew the house from just coming there to do service work. Worked on the roof, worked on the plumbing, did, right. you know, trimmed the hedges a year ago and it's been in his head. Um, but the idea that it is the, what we, the classic serial killer that bounces around the country and does things just completely randomly. Um, awful stretch for that person to have hit upon that house. And luckily that night. Right. He would have had to done some real planning. Now, do you think it's a coincidence that this happened the weekend that Kaylee comes back to show the vehicle to her best friend? I mean, the weekend that she comes back is this, it's when yeah. these murders happen. Isn't that a sad thing? Yeah. I, so, you know, I, again, this is, there's always counterfactuals in this case. You know, you could say, okay, she wasn't supposed to be there. He did the, the two on the second floor first and then went upstairs looking for Maddie. So Maddie must have been the target. But again, you have to be very, very careful because for all we know, we know the girls were out that night. They were at the corner club. Did he see Kaylee that night? Um, and is that what spurred him on? Is it a beef that he's had with her for a year or two, thought she was out of his life for whatever reason, he didn't think he'd ever see her again. He saw her that night. Maybe he's a little intox, you know, he's maybe taken uh, some a narcotic or something. He's, you know, he's high. And um, he decides tonight's the night I'm going to do it. She's back in town. This is my opportunity. So, you know, the idea that she was not supposed to be there, you know, could be something. But in the scenario I just posed, it's entirely explainable. Um, so I think um, I'm not sure I would put investigatory wise. I don't think I put a lot of eggs into that basket. I would keep my options open relative to that. Kaylee was the one who did have the most visible um, social media presence. Right. So, you know, there's that aspect of it as well. And, um, you know, if she put out someplace that I haven't seen in a, in a comment or something, hey, heading back to Moscow with my new ride, because she was coming back to show off her car, right. then the perp would know that she was going to be there. So I don't put a whole lot of stock in the fact that she just happened to be there that weekend. Um, it, it's entirely too possible that the perp saw her or was aware of that somehow. Okay. Um, I got a couple of questions from some of the Facebook users sure. that are on the uh, Facebook page. Kimberly James from uh, Virginia, she's asking, you know, um, you know, belief based on limited info coming out of uh, out and forensics coming in that they have an idea who the suspect is and they cannot make an arrest until they have substantial over the top evidence, so a full prosecution can happen. The so, white car desperately want to uh, link it. So, so, so what's that name of the person who asked that? Uh, it was uh, Kimberly James from Virginia. Okay, Kimberly, good on you because I know what she's talking about and she picked up something. So uh, a couple of days ago, the chief of police, um, or actually it might have been a captain, Captain Lanier, who's leading the investigation. Right. Um, and, you know, i got to say something for these cops. You know, they've taken a real beating. It's, there's a real easy meme to fall into here to say, oh, local yokels in over their heads because it's a small department, 27 people. 
And yeah, there's been a couple of public relations glitches along the way that you'd like to have a little smoother. But you know what? Uh, New York City is the biggest city in the country. It's the biggest police department. We have public relations glitches all the time. It's not just because they're a small town department. But the point I want to make is there's no indication that just because they've had some public relations glitches that the investigation has gone sideways. Uh, They called in Idaho State PD and the FBI right away. That shows a certain sophistication and professionalism. They knew right away this is a heavy thing. We didn't get a quick solve. We got to get help here. So good on them for that. And I kind of hope they, uh, you know, I really hope that they, they solve it, not just obviously for the families and for the town, um, for them, because I think that, you know, they could, they could use the vindication because I think that they've been unfairly, unfairly vilified. But to answer her question, Lanier, the captain, I believe it was him, said a couple of days ago, we don't just want an arrest, we want a conviction. Right. And the read from that is that they're looking at a possible and that they are sort of circling the wagons around that possible and they don't want to make the arrest while the case isn't everything they want it to be because they don't want to arrest somebody. Um, first of all, it could be the wrong person, but also because you don't want that person to be able to beat it in court or, um, you know, challenge some of the evidence and it gets thrown out, et cetera. You know, I'm old enough to remember the Olympic bombing. Um, right. And, uh, you know, that, that guy, uh, the, the security guard who discovered it, I mean, they, they came out guns blazing, made that guy's life a living hell, and it was the wrong guy. It ultimately right. ended up being a, a, a different bomber altogether. So you really don't want that. I mean, you know, it's really there's nothing worse than that in law enforcement. So I think that that's what they're guarding against. I don't know. I'm very hopeful. I took that as a hopeful sign. So I know what Kimberly's talking about, and I took that as a hopeful sign as well. When I saw that, I put myself in his shoes, and I said, okay, man, if I had to make, if I had made that statement to the media, why would I make that? And it did feel like where she's going, but we haven't heard anything since. So there was an incident, uh, you know, uh, a while back where the boy, the, the husband killed the, um, his uh, wife, and at the funeral... Uh, engagement he actually came and spoke yeah and the why i mean the mother and the father embraced him yeah. but at, when he was arrested the police came back and said we did that on purpose mm. it was an act right. right so we can get the evidence that we need is that a possibility that i mean i think anything is possible um i think that um you know there are cases in situations like that what, what they'll do is they'll wire somebody up you know what i mean and to get a statement um, a little dicey to do it with a wife because, you, you know, uh, wife testifying against a husband in court um, is, um, you know, in our system, uh, you know, generally doesn't happen. But, um, you know, you can, um, but you can get um, sort of intelligence type evidence from what, what's called a controlled phone call, right. um, et cetera. It depends on, you know, if it is in a two or three party uh, or multi-party state, you know, if, one, if having one person in on it is enough, otherwise it can be illegal and that stuff will be thrown out. I wouldn't assess in this case that it's going to go that way. Right. Um, I don't know. Um, I guess it's possible that they, they have somebody that they think might be the, you know, the perp, um, it's conceivable that maybe they work a, what we would call a source, you know, probably either, uh, you know, an undercover cop or, um, you know, do some other facility to monitor that person to see if they give it up. Um, with that kind of thing, I think what you're more likely to get is digital evidence. Right. As in, as opposed to using a live human being, do more passive coverage, as in pull the IP logs for, let's say, Kaylee's TikTok, then pull Maddie's Instagram, 
then pull the cell tower that night, then pull the Wi-Fi in the house. Look for a digital commonality. Look for uh, maybe a phone that was also in the corner club that night. Like right. You're looking for commonalities, right? So you have to imagine if somebody was this obsessed, they very well may have been on the social media of these women. And even, you know, TikTok has an um, American footprint. They have a uh, component in California, I think it's Calverton, where you can do search warrants and you can get the kind of digital evidence I'm talking about. Right, right. And so if you can do that and start finding some commonality, I mean, just, you know, for the sake of argument, you know, you're a detective and you see that in the week leading up to what occurred, a particular IP hits Kaylee's TikTok 30 times, the same one hits Maddie's Instagram 22 times, and that same um, phone is, uh, let's say, pinging in the area of the social club, of the uh, corner club, right. uh, rather. You know, well, then obviously that's going to be somebody that you're going to look at. And there were other things to cross-reference cross it. And then you got to do another round, by the way, of, of legal process, another round of search warrants to say, okay, well, no, you know, we have this identifier. It's probably the IMEI from the phone. Okay, then who owns that? Mm. And you, that's another round, and that takes time. So that's why when they say, look, we're going through a lot of evidence, give us time. Especially this digital stuff, it's it's very um, work intensive. It's very analysis intensive. You got to go through a ton of uh, data right. to look for these commonalities, um, and then you cross reference it. Let's say to credit cards that we used at the corner club that night, and you say, okay, this guy owns the phone that was in the corner club, and he used his credit card there, and he was also all over Kaylee's TikTok. This right. is somebody we got to look at, and what you can do then is consensual swab. And compare it to the DNA that maybe is on Zana's fingernails. Again, mm. this is all speculation, but you're looking for a commonality that really points you at somebody that says this guy was in their lives. Certainly that night he was in their lives before the event. And so somebody like this, we got to look hard at. Right. So they must have DNA. If they, they must have some kind of DNA. Hopefully, we're we're, we're, we're ho hoping. Yeah. If they do have that DNA, then all the suspects that are around them, or all, not the suspects, all the people that are around them, they must have taken DNA tests. And clear them. Yeah, they, I know. Like, I, I've heard that they have done some swabs, so I know that okay. that, that um, is in play. Um, and if they're doing swabs, um, now again, I don't have that from the police. That's the reporting out there, and we have to be very cautious. Right. But my understanding is that there were some swabs done. So if they're if they're doing swabs, um, you know, you have to imagine they have something to compare to. The problem with the DNA is it's going to be very mixed. You know, if it's right. blood, you know, you're going to have it's down to some real scientific analysis. That's certainly over my head. Um, to, to isolate. Um, the thing that I think would be most fruitful and I would be most hopeful for is, as we know, Zana fought. Mm. She has defensive wounds that's as per her father. Right. And you have to imagine if one of the upstairs victims is more banged up than the other, then that person likely fought for whatever reason, whether right. she was the target or because she woke up or whatever it is. And you got to hope, as I said at the top, you have... Again, fingernail scrapings, because that's isolated. That's not blood mixed with other blood that you have to isolate. Under the fingernails, in two different situations, there's a very good chance that this is who you're looking at here. And so that you got that, and that gives you an exemplar. Later on, if you isolate it, and as Kimberly said, if it's down to one person, then you just want to make sure it's the right person. you got to get his DNA somehow and see if it compares to what's under Zana's fingernails. Right, right. Now, there's FBI analysts that are in Idaho right now. Um, and so, you know, they, they have two type of uh, killers. 
They have a sloppy type of killer, and then they have somebody who's organized. From the beginning, they said this person was sloppy. So that must mean that they left some kind of evidence behind if they're sloppy. Yeah. If that's the case, you know, you know, when you compare it to FBI analysts, a sloppy killer is usually somebody who's younger, who's never done this before, who's, right. um, you know, first-time killer. Can you... I mean, it wasn't that sloppy because they didn't catch him yet. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, they, they're sloppy and then they're sloppy. I don't know what, you know, these things sometimes come down to semantics. And, you know, it's just happened to me. I, I said something in the air. It was very innocuous and people focused on it like it was indicative of something. And, it was, right. you know, no, it was no big deal. It was just, um, you know, an observation I made. And so I, I, I tend to be very cautious with this stuff. But, um, you know, look, I, I do think that in terms of the digital footprint that we all leave, um, a student, students these days are live as much digitally as they do in the real world. You know, we all have a very uh, large sort of virtual life, and especially, you know, college-age students. Right. So the idea that they have not put together enough digital data to begin to focus on somebody by now, maybe over the next couple of weeks, let's give it a little more time, because as I said, you have to do a few rounds of, mm -hmm. of legal process, and you have to go through a ton of data, which, by the way, is the value of the FBI here. Value of the FBI here is not only that they can, you know, they're a national by international body, they can talk to people who are not in town if need be, but they're very good at tech stuff. They, they, they do this kind of thing very well. Right. Um, so I'm sure a lot of the, I know I think I read 20 or 22 of the FBI folks that are assigned to this case are not in Moscow. Okay. My gut tells me that what that means is that uh, they've assisted with some interviews around the country, but it's also probably a pretty good cadre of intel analysts in mm. Washington field office they, they have a cyber unit there who are probably crunching data points that they're getting back from the social media dumps so what is it what I'm where am I going with all that um it's possible that this person was more organized than any of us are giving him credit for because he knew enough to either turn his phone off or leave it home right and that would hurt the investigation um because that's a not the only way but an important way that people can be tracked these days. Um, you know, these phones, it's not just the phone provider, you know, the service provider. The apps do all kinds of stuff that you can utilize as an investigator to see who was in that area. And in some cases, you can get down to very, very localized because these phones talk to each other. All right. So there are all kinds of things that you can do, and it's a very fast-evolving field. But when people say it was sloppy... You know, uh, well, what if that means just that the scene was very graphic, mm. you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the perp was necessarily sloppy in his execution because, as I said, he still hasn't been caught, and there are data points that I think might have given us a pretty quick solve. So, um, you know, we'll have to wait to see what develops, but um, if he were that sloppy... He probably would, you'd have witnesses saying, well, I saw a white male, 5'10", 175 pounds, covered in blood, walking down King Road. Um, you know, there's this video that's out of the, the cop with the um, body cam right. talking to those kids. They, there were kids out even that late. I mean, the girls, the, the victims, God bless, they were coming back late night. There's, right, act, right. there's activity. So, <clears throat> you know, they were coming back. And that's another thing. They bought from the food truck. Right, famous video with the food truck. They they bought um, pasta bolognese. I think if I remember what it was, right? It's it's spaghetti. Yep, that's not something you're gonna eat in the Uber. Mm. They brought that home. Now the second floor has the kitchen. 
And, you know, there are those photos of the pots and pans and bowls and glasses in, in the kitchen right. that we've all seen. They get home, the girls get home, 152. My read on that is the, the way the police were, and this is according to the police uh, timeline. My read on that is they were able to get that because the girls' ha- uh, phones hit the Wi-Fi in the house. Mm. In Kaylee's TikTok, you can see a Wi-Fi server, well, looks to be a Wi-Fi server in the background, one of her TikToks. So that's a very precise time. 152, they have Kaylee and Maddie hitting the house. <clears throat> Again, it could be by from an estimation from let's say a um, a camera that they passed by that was time stamped. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I had to guess, it's because they dumped the Wi Fi log. And right, they got her hitting there. They got Ethan and Zana hitting the house one forty five, seven mm-hmm. minutes apart. You got to imagine they were all together. And my gut tells me there's a very good chance that the two girls, Kaylee and Maddie, were eating spaghetti in the kitchen. Well, again, that kitchen is what you look into from the back parking lot. Ah, got it. See what I'm saying? Yep. So. Um, the idea that this was just some out of control guy, it was very sloppy and, um, you know, he didn't know what he was doing at all. Um, in light of some of those facts, <clears throat> you know, I feel like they'd have him. I think mm-hmm. that there's a chance that there was more thought going that either he got very lucky, um, or possibly there's been some sloppy investigative work. Uh, you know, a lot of talent there, you know, with all of these, uh, agencies. So I, 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 I tend not to think that, but it's possible. But I think there's also the possibility that he was not that sloppy. Right. And that he did some things and thought about this, and uh, that's why he has not been apprehended. How planned do you think it was? I mean, was it something that it just happened that night where it was, you know, something out of anger, or this person planned it for weeks before it happened? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that there's any way for us to tell that right now. The only thing I will say is this. the First of all, all, everything I just said about... um, the, the fact that he hasn't been caught yet and the fact that there are some things that indicate he, at the very least, was laying in wait, right? Right. Um, but the fact that it was a Saturday night, that is the only data point that I have that tells me that there may have been a trigger mm. that set him off. Um, you know, it's a Saturday night. Maybe he's got a few drinks in him. Maybe he's got some chemical substances we don't know maybe dropped a bed hit an acid that really damaged his judgment whatever the heck it is right right, right. and it's a saturday night when everybody it's date night everybody's out um you know it's a party night um you know and if it is this sort of incel thing that we were talking about relative to let's say david berkowitz saturday night's the kind of night that that kind of thing comes home to a guy mm. who's alone so there's that possibility especially if he is a student um you know, I, I don't know that this is a student. I know that there's been a lot of speculation about, well, and they, maybe he did it that weekend before Thanksgiving because he knew all the students would be leaving and he was a student and he got a chance to get out of town and I gave him a head start and, you know, there's that. But on the other hand, um, I feel like whoever this person was, um, you know, was not unfamiliar with knives. Um, somebody that I would bet has a hunting license. Mm. Um, somebody who's, you know, used to doing um, maybe this kind of thing with an animal. You know, and I know they've washed out the pet that was supposedly skinned and stuff. But right. in light of the fact that it's Idaho, it's hunting country. I'd never been in that part of the country before. It's a beautiful area, but it's real open. You know, it feels like hunting country. You know, I saw a ton of deer just driving around from the airport. Right. So, um, you know, I feel like um, I don't I don't know uh, whether it was a student or not. I think you got to keep both options open. Um, but it, the idea that this was completely... Um, uh, planned. Um, the only thing I, I would say that 
cuts against that is this idea that it was Saturday night and maybe that is somewhat, that set them off. Um, you saw the food truck video. You know, a lot of people commented on it was a weird situation where the guy in the hoodie was following them yeah. and they really were not paying attention to them. Right. Um, and then they just left without even saying bye or nothing. Right. And at one point, you know, they said F you to them, uh, to, I guess, to the guys. Now, the new video came out, which the police are not saying that they're venting, or vetting on it, but they have that same guy walking with them. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of, um, you know. Look, he's one of the people that they've washed out. That's their own statement. Right. Um, you know, I've been asked this on the air, and I always make the same point, which is there's washed out and there's washed out. That doesn't mean that that person cannot come back in. Right. Um, and, you know, the, they're, they're not stupid. They've seen all these videos. They've had that new video that came out for weeks now, from what I understand. The person who uh, provided it to the media had already provided it to the police. Right. And the police have been well aware of it. Uh, it does look to be the same person, you know, same clothing, et cetera. They are not, they don't look defensive or alarmed when he's walking with them. Right. They're having a very casual conversation right in front of them. Yeah. So they seem quite comfortable to shoot down that theory. Um, I don't want to speculate, um, who, you know, I'm aware of some of the speculation around mm-hmm. him, et cetera. Um, let the police handle that. Um, the others aspects of it that you talk about at the food truck, who knows, who knows what the conversation was. You can't really hear it that clearly. Um, you know, everybody's been out, everybody's been in the bars, everybody's had a few drinks. Right. Um, you know, I don't know how much you can, um, you can put that, but I would have to imagine that one of the first things the task force did was looked at the subject in the hoodie very, very hard. Right. And the fact that they were willing to go out on a limb and say, not a suspect at this time, tells me that they found stuff that really pointed them away from him. Oh, okay. Um, that brings me to the question about online sleuths, armchair detectives. Right. How much damage are they doing to this case and and disrupting the police? I mean, it's been reported that they're causing a lot of disruption with all these false accusations and right 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 so i know they put out the press put out a i'm sorry the uh, the police rather put out a press release saying um you know stop doing that and i think it was from what i read it was less that the police were concerned that their case was being damaged and more that they felt that um people who they had decided were not suspects were getting harassed um and they were uh, attempting to stop that and so um, that seemed to be the, the tone of the press release that they put out. Um, look, you know, if it's, if it's on bulletin boards, it's a, this is part of the First Amendment. People are allowed to talk about these things. Um, they're allowed to speculate um, to each other. And I understand there's a lot of interest in it. And I, would, I never would get in the way of that because um, this, this is America. Our First Amendment is, is, you know, realistically the most unique thing we have. Um, so I actually, from what I've seen, don't judge that um, the online sleuths have done any damage to the case. But one thing I will say is that this case is the most close to the vest um, investigation of this sort that I think I've ever seen. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the fact that there have been no substantive leaks. Normally, um, I don't care what agency it is, somebody tells somebody who tells somebody who tells a reporter 
right. and the reporter does the DNA, you know, does ge the genealogy of the, of the uh, would you hear it, would you hear it, would you hear it, gets back to the principal and then runs with the story and says, well, what we're hearing is X, Y, Z. There hasn't been a lot of that here. Mm. So um, it strikes me that the task force has been extraordinarily disciplined here. And uh, so that being the case, I don't know that a lot of this online speculation is hitting the most sensitive areas. Because right. nobody knows, you know, we can surmise, but nobody knows. So from what I know, and again, going to the same point, I don't know a lot of the facts, but from there, I don't assess that these online specula uh, speculation has damaged the case that I've seen anyway. Why would they not put a reward out? I mean, usually with these cases, you would have a large reward because they're looking for somebody, unless they already have the perk and they're, they're just yeah, kind yeah, of... You know, that's a good question. So I've talked about this, and I think that, uh, you know, if you've gone to a, an important point here... Um, Rewards cut two ways. You know, they could push somebody who has some doubts about a potential suspect over the top and say, you know what, I wasn't going to say anything, but you know what, for $100,000 and uh, pay off my student loan, I'm going to give this tip. You never know. It could be him. Um, it does provide incentive. Um, on the other hand, it, they are sitting, as we have said, on 10,000 tips, and so you're going to get a whole bunch more. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a whole new flood of stuff. Right. Um, what I would say, though, is that if you're going to put a reward out, you need to do it while you have the task force fully constituted because you have over 60 bodies working on this case. But I don't, you know, it's just uh, the, the nature of things. Unfortunately, at some point, a lot of this task force is going to have to go back to doing what they normally do. Even some of Moscow PD has been pulled off of this from what I understand because they have to handle patrol. There are other things going on. Right. It's college, town, you get things happening. So at some point, that task force is going to be whittled down if you offer the reward then, now you get a whole new barrage of tips and you don't have the task force constituted to handle it. And then you're overwhelmed and then maybe tip number 642 doesn't get the TLC that you'd want it to and that's missed. Mm. So I feel like if they're not putting out a reward now, I go back to the fact that they have told the families investigation's going in the right direction. They've put out in a press release, we're making progress. They haven't posted a reward. They feel confident in not putting out a lot of data to the public. Mm. As I said, they're really holding the case close. All of those things argue, and then you have the statement from the, you know, the police captain saying, we don't want an arrest, we want a conviction. Reading those tea leaves, it's conceivable to say they must be focusing in on somebody, and, and that's a great sign, and I'm very hopeful that that's the case. Um, what I would hate to see is a reward come out in March or April of next year when they're down to, let's say, 10 full-time bodies on the case, if that, because that would be the wrong time to do it. How confident are you that this is somebody in the inner circle? Or is it, is it can, based on all the evidence that we have right now? Right. I don't, um, I don't, again, I don't know enough. I would think, though, that if it was somebody very close to any of the people that live in that house, they'd be getting there. Right. So, um, you know, but it could turn out to be, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, everybody thought a particular case wasn't solved. And then it turns out the husband shows up at the funeral and there was some speculation that the killer was going to show up at the candlelight vigil that they had uh, out in Moscow. You right. know, so it could be somebody that's close. Um, but I, I feel like with the number of investigators that they have, number of tips that they have with the digital and witness information that is available to them. The immediate circle, I feel like they probably, unless something emerges that shocks everybody, 
I feel like they, they probably have vetted those people and washed them out. And I think that they probably, in the same way that you have to expand a crime scene as you go forward, I think you have to start to expand your circle of who you're looking at. And again, it could be somebody as random as the landscaper's brother who tagged along one day and got wind of the house and has been obsessed with it ever since, mm. you know. Um, you know, there's an old line, what do you covet? You cover what you see. So for this person to do something that I think we'd all agree is just the most extreme of human acts, they have to have been somehow or other connected to that house continually. I don't feel like it's a one-off. They saw one of the girls, you know, the perp saw one of the girls once at a 7-Eleven or something and then, you know, came back a year later and did this. You know, I don't see that. It feels to me like something that has been repeatedly demonstrated, either the house or one of the girls, mm. has been repeatedly in this person's scope. And that's ultimately what drove this person on a lonely Saturday night. If that is the case, why spare the dog? Why spare the two surviving roommates? Because they knew the basement was there if the person knew the house. Well, again, I don't like to speculate too, too much, but right. there are, you know, you can come up with answers for those that, um, you know, the, uh, fit certain theories, don't fit others. The dog, apparently very old, used to a lot of people coming in and out of the house. Okay? Right. Um, you know, uh, there were Nazis in, in World War II worst of the worst who loved animals mm. maybe he just didn't have it and he didn't want to kill a dog he's a dog <laughs> right, lover right? right if he's a hunter he's not going to want to kill a dog let's say right, right? right. so you know there's there are theories that, uh, that could cover that um you know or that you know maybe he'd met the dog dog was apparently a gentle dog mm. you know he maybe had met the dog in the past if he'd been in the house and had a soft spot for the dog maybe the dog was not even in his view the dog mm. apparently wasn't a barker Maybe the dog was isolated in another part of the house and just never showed up, never turned up at the scene while he was doing what he did. Right. So these, again, these are all possibilities. As far as the girls downstairs, first possibility, he didn't know they were there. They were dead asleep. They mm. came in much earlier. They weren't part of the interaction when everybody came home kind of together at the same time. He doesn't know they're there. Or he does know they're there, but they haven't seen his face. It's conceivable especially if there was one target that everybody else was done to keep them quiet because they were aware of him at the house. Remember, when can we place all four victims together at the house? Mm. About 152. Right. Call it 0200, about 2 o'clock in the morning. It is quite likely. I mean, they get home within seven minutes of each other, according to the police official timeline. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a very good chance that Ethan, I'm sorry, uh, Kaylee and Madison are eating in that second floor kitchen. Ethan and Xander's bedroom is off that second floor kitchen. Right. And there's like a kitchen and a little bit of a common area. You can see it in one of Kaylee's uh, TikToks. Mm -hmm. So those four are there together at that point. Is there a reason that then all four had to be done because they all four of them were together at that point? Right, right. And yet the two girls downstairs are dead asleep and not part of that interaction. Mm. Two girls downstairs were off, also off someplace else that night, unconnected uh, to any of the four victims. Right. So there are various theories that you could come up with as you know, to, to explain that. One of the things I, that I do find interesting about that is if you accept or entertain the theory that he exited through the front door, which, again, I have a little issue, I have a little trouble you know, swallowing that, but I guess, you know, the door is open. You have to entertain it. That means he walked right by both of those open, uh, those doors that had on the first floor. That's a first floor exit. Right. I couldn't find the 
find that in your Apple Music Library. You can ask me to play a radio station or ask for your music on a different app. Sorry. <laughs> um, I thought a woman was in the room. <laughs> um, he had to walk by two occupied bedrooms right. with with other potential victims in them. Did he know they were there? Were those key co- like you know those key uh, locks? Were those actually engaged, mm-hmm. whereas the others were not? This is where I say you know we don't know enough facts. Maybe tried those doors and they were both locked. You know we don't we don't know. And uh, Kaylee's dad, he's been very vocal. Yeah, you think it's helping the case or it's. Um, you know, I think the most important thing is that he tells the police everything that he can, and I am sure he has. He's been obviously very vociferous. He really wants the case to be to be solved. Um, I hesitate to opine on that. I've met him, you know. I've talked to him, um, and uh, you know, I can you know he's he's obviously a guy who's suffering a lot, you know. Right. Um, and he has. Uh, I don't think he has hurt the case. I don't think he's heard the case. We, as I said, there are, um, I know in fact that he has done things that have helped the case in his, uh, interactions with the police. He's talked about it. You know, he helped them do some stuff with her phone. Um, he's talked about that. He's given them uh, obviously a lot of background about the girl's lives and et cetera. Um, but I don't know that he has done anything more than excited more attention on this and on this whole case. And frankly, how could you get any more attention on this thing? I right. mean, as everybody's been really focusing on it. So um, that's a guy who's, you know, my heart goes out to. I think any thinking person feels that way. And so I, I, I don't think that he's heard the case now. Do you think this will be another John Bonet Ramsey case where it will never go unsolved? Or do you think something will likely come up? Ooh, tough question. I, you know, I'm still hopeful. You can't deny that what every day goes by, the case cools a little bit. Um, I'm, you know, we are, whatever is today, what's today's date? Uh, the 20th or so, something like that? Yeah, yeah today's the 20th. The 20th, right. So as of December 20, 2022, I am going to say this is not a cold case by any means. There's plenty of stuff for them to be doing, and for all we know, they're doing it, and for all we know, they're, be, they're sitting on stuff that is really um, pointing them where they want to be. So we don't know. Um, with that said, you know, the weather starts to get warm in 2023, and by then you'd have to say, okay, well, all the DNA that could be processed has been processed, all the physical evidence that could be processed has been processed, and most importantly, and the thing that I've been harping on takes time, the digital stuff is all back right. and has been crunched. That takes a long time, and I think that um, as time goes on, that's where, you know, short of a tip that comes out of the blue that somebody says, hey, I know who you got to look at, it's this guy here, and it turns out to be true, short of a tip that falls out of the sky in terms of dealing with just evidence that you're sitting on that you have to go through as time goes on that digital stuff looms larger because you know you have to assume by now they've done a lot of the physical evidence which is the sort of traditional detective work but what people don't realize is these days detective work police work in general no matter what field uh, area of of police work it is Mm. highly highly digital Mm. really really important these days and um that stuff takes time. But as it gets later and later, you have to imagine they will have gone through a lot of that. And so that's why I say if it starts, to, the weather starts to get warm and we're still not there, you got to start to say, Ugh, you know, maybe we are getting into a tough situation. But I still, I am putting my eggs in the basket of a solve. I, you know, I think they'll get there. How many months before it starts dwindling down? 
I, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a you know a bright line rule on that. Um, you know, well, like I said, if, if um, by I mean, look, it's a large. You got four victims. You got four lives. You got to really go back and reverse engineer, right? You know, and that really expands the digital footprint that you have to look at. You know, um, it's very very hard to say. I, I I don't know what they have, and I don't know what they're going through. Even in a digital world, I have a feel. Um, I do know what they're going to do and the kind of stuff that they're going to be looking at. And like I said, it's going to be labor intensive. I'm sure labor intensive. I'm sure they got those, uh, those, that prosecutor, I'm sure the prosecutors and that prosecutor's office mm-hmm. are writing search warrants, you know, continually. Um, but as I said, I would say by the spring, certainly you'd have to say to yourself, they've looked at the more obvious of the digital areas that you would scrape. And they have tried various things to try to get forward and if by then you're still not hearing, A, they're focused on somebody or something like that, you may start to say to yourself, okay, then this is going to take a break that occurs maybe years later. You know, there was right. a big case in Indiana that just came down. It took them like three, four years, right? That's maybe. what I was going to talk to you about. The Delphi yeah. case, which I yeah. followed, took seven years. Yeah. And it turned out to be the guy that was at the CVS. And it was the most obvious guy. And when you look in retrospect, right. a lot of times you look at these things in retrospect and you say, well, how did they not see that? And, and sure. they went back and they found out that he actually went to the ranger that day and said that he was there and put himself there, but the ranger just dismissed that. Yeah, and so they had to do it and they went back into it. And that's the kind of thing they'll do with, you know, with cold cases. That's why there's a cold case squad because right. you get fresh eyes. Mm. You know, you don't want the people who have been living and breathing this case day in and day out that say, okay, let's start over and look at it again. Cause as I said, confirmation bias, whatever they originally thought is what they uh, may sort of default to. So a cold case, you very often have very experienced detectives who've done all kinds of cases and they look at it with fresh eyes. They start going through the file and they start going into a different direction. And yeah, sure. It's possible here, but I would argue that it's uh, you know, you're a long way from a cold case and that case that you're talking about, the Indiana case, is a very good example of just look starting over. Let's look at it fresh, and uh, you know what 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 jumps out at you ends up being the solve. How different would this case would have been if it was in New York City? You think it would be solved much faster? Oh, there's one thing specifically that would. Um, and look, it's never the agency, and I I, I dislike doing that. And I'm yeah, not. No, no, I, I meant like the region because it was right. Western. No, and I, and I know what you mean, um, but I do want to make the point that you know people. To, oh, this was a big city police department. They would have saw. It's never the agency. It's the people. Right. I mean, there's a resource issue. Obviously, in a big agency, you have more money, you have more bodies, etc. But they have bodies, and the, the governor supported this thing with a million bucks right off the bat. Right? right. So they have those things, and they have enough people. So it comes down to individuals who are usually the, the real thing that. That is a tell, uh, you know, that, that for a solve. Um, but in terms of the region, New York City undeniably would be a more favorable uh, environment to look at a case like this for one simple reason, video. Right. I walked that area. I walked in and around that area. I walked the, uh, the exterior of the crime scene. I walked the neighborhood. There's just no cameras. Um, the last metric I saw for New York City walking down a Manhattan block I think you're on camera 10 times 15 mm. times something crazy like that and then, and that's an old uh, statistic it's probably a lot higher since so you know walking around in New York City you are videoed constantly it would be very very difficult is it possible sure more so in the boroughs but um, you know we had a case recently there was a Queens case where there was only one video it was an exterior ring camera and it turned out the handyman had killed a woman in a uh, Regal Park, uh, Queens. 
But nonetheless, there was that video. You could see the right. approximate height. You could see him wheeling the uh, the the trunk with the body in it. He deposed he disposed of the body in a wooded area that he had put in the trunk. So even there in a very residential, I know that neighborhood. You know, that's a it's like Forest Hills, Regal Park. It's a really nice area, very residential, old homes. Even there, you did manage to pull some video. New York City has a lot of video. Most cities, you know, mm-hmm. Philly, you know, all these all major cities these days, they're inundated with video. Unfortunately, in this student area, there's there's just no video. I, I didn't see any ring cameras. I didn't mm. see, and there's no traffic cameras. Like you know, in in New York, you would get the um, there's there's license plate readers. There's all kinds of stuff that goes to the um, uh, you know, DMV kind of stuff. You know, right. auto most stuff they get the red light summonses and things like that. Um, the NYPD is cameras. There's all kinds of cameras stat- scattered all over the place. That if you put enough resources into it, you're going to find this positive video. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that here. Right. So I don't know how he got out of there. If he did drive, wherever he did it, it doesn't apparently, uh, you know, the the, uh, the car wasn't wasn't photographed. Right. Moving forward, what would you give, what advice would you give to college students so that we can prevent something like this happening again? I mean, security cameras, what what kind of uh, tips can you give? Yeah, you know what? That's a great point, Vino. And, um, you know, let me go a little bit off track. I wrote something for, um, it's on my page on foxnews.com, um, before this event talking about how there is just an explosion of criminality um, against college students going on on campus, but just off campus mm-hmm. as well, just as this one is. This one is just off campus by like a block um, around the country. That the, the instances are really, really surprising. And I can't believe nobody, <clears throat> I can't believe nobody has picked up on this more. It does not seem to be a major story, but let's just stay in the area where we are now, Temple University has had a firebombing, has had a series of home invasions, right. and these are all college student victims. So in a general sense, I would say, and look, I'm not coming down on Temple University. I'm sure they have good public safety people, et cetera, but you have to be cognizant if you're sending a your kid away from school or if you're a kid uh, to school or if you're a kid going away to school, you have to be cognizant of the fact that they're really, you know, a lot of these schools are in urban areas because the kids want the nightlife. You know what I mean? Oh, I want to go to that school. I want to go to NYU so I can go out hanging out and go drinking in Greenwich Village and stuff like that. You know? Right. And what you're getting is, as crime in our cities is undeniably statistically rising, right. you're getting college students more and more being victim, victimized. And uh, this is an undeniable trend. And like I said, I've written about it, and uh, I'm going to be writing about it more. And then this happened, which you would think would shine the light on it. So in answer to your question, ring camera, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be ring, I think, is a trade, a trade name. But exterior cameras, um, I would definitely have very ostentatiously posted um, exterior camera wherever I live so that anybody coming there knows you're on camera. They're not that expensive. The service is next to nothing, you know, and the, the, uh, the video goes into the cloud. You know, it's really not that expensive. And in the scheme of what you pay for college in this country, it's a negligible amount. Right. Interior cameras as well. As part of the deal with these things, they usually give you six cameras, eight cameras, post them in places that can be seen on the exterior, have them in the interior as well so that people can see. And then what else? Make sure you travel together. You know, if you're going out in, on, on the town, et cetera, stick together. Um, you know, lock your doors, um, and the exterior doors, but probably your interior doors as well. You know, if he had to kick, his do- uh, kick a door in, then some of these people might have had more of a fighting chance. So, you know, unfortunately, this is the uh, world we live in, and you do have to take some of these steps. You have to be very careful. Don't do anything. And you know, I'll tell you something else, man. And I know this is going to fall on deaf ears, but you got to watch your online stuff. 
All right. You know, right. these kids put their entire lives out there. Yep. You can re- you can really get a read on who is where, what they're interested in. You know, you really can find out everything you need to know about a person to do even financial crime. Um, and so really, really have to be very, very cautious of that kind of thing. Unfortunately, you have to be defensive and the statistics and the, and the, the news stories that are coming out across the country bear it out. All right, Paul, and give us your website. Give us information where they can reach you and uh, check out more information about you. So my website, <clears throat> opsdesk.org, opsdesk.org. Um, yeah, we're gearing up a new website um, that's going to be, uh, I think, interactive and really interesting, and it's going to be focusing on, uh, you know, uh, true crime stuff, et cetera. Um, right. I have a page on foxnews.com where I uh, write. You know, I've done a series of articles uh, written for the New York Post, um, the Manhattan Institute, a number of different things. And, um, you know, I'm not hard to find online. Right. So uh, I appreciate this, and uh, it was very interesting. All right. Thank, Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate you coming out and uh, giving us a lot of information about this case. Marine, you got it. Thank you. All right. Anything else you want to add? Anything else that we missed? Uh, no, I think that was pretty good. It was good. Awesome. Yes, good awesome questions. podcast. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Joe, thanks. You were sleeping. It's okay. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just joking. I'm messing with you. I like him when he's